Hello, everybody. Welcome to Women in the Word. So glad you're here. Those of you who are in person and some are watching online, welcome to the Judean wilderness. That's pretty great, isn't it? My name's Amy Foster, and I'm just always so delighted to be at Women in the Word with all of you. So thanks for being here. We're going to study 1 Samuel 10 and 11 today. And I hope you remember last week we got a great overview and we really talked about this is a major turning point in Israel's history, but it's actually a turning point in God's history with the whole world. And I think we can all relate to turning points, can't we? You know, we have personal turning points, corporate turning points, national turning points. Um, I'm really enjoying the season of parenting. I'm watching my sons navigate numerous turning points as they learn how to adult in the world, and that's pretty exciting. And then I'm also working right now with a group of college seniors, and so they're all anticipating in the next four or five months, they're about to have the biggest turning point of their young lives. And what I really want to say to everybody facing a turning point is, you know, choosing the exact path is really not the most important thing. The most important thing is how will you walk with God on the path? Will you make space for him at all? Will you trust him? Will you rely on him? Will you worship him as your king? That's really the most important thing. So that's a t we're talking about turning points today. It's a turning point in Israel's history because they're no longer satisfied with their current situation. Israel has looked around at the nations beside them and they've decided we want a king that looks like the other kings. We want a king who will physically go out and fight our battles for us. So history turns in response to their request. But we need to be very clear, God's plans don't change even though history is turning here. We see this mysterious thing playing out where um, the free will of man runs parallel with the providential rule of God. God has created human beings with agency. We get to make choices, good choices and bad choices. And God lets us make those choices, but God continues to work in the choices that we make, and he is moving everything in the world to his determined end. So God is still ruling here, but he's letting men choose. So I want to talk to you a little bit about where this is happening in the whole framework of the Bible, because many historians kind of break the Bible or God's history with mankind. They break it into three sections, and we're at a turning point here. We're moving from one section to another. The first section in your Bible begins in Genesis, and it goes through 1 Samuel chapter 9. And the big theme over all these sections is always the king and his kingdom, but we see that very clearly from Genesis through this area in 1 Samuel where we are. We see God calling together a group of worshiping people, and he is their king. They rely on him. They worship him alone. They bow to nothing else. And we know God has been leading the nation of Israel. He is serving as their king, and we call that a theocracy. All right. We also know that for the last 300 years, God has been using human beings' judges to be his mouthpiece as he continues to lead the people. But at this time in Israel's history, the future looks a little insecure and it looks a little uncertain. The future judges are corrupt and self-seeking and no one trusts them very much. And Israel continues to have these threats from the outside. They've got the pesky Ammonites pressuring them from the east. They 
They've got the Philistines pressuring them from the West. So the threats they're facing are political, economic, moral, and spiritual. These are real threats. And because they can't see their king with their eyes, they look around at the other nations and they think, we want a king like they have. Wouldn't that be great? So that's where this first section in Bible history ends and switches to the second section. And it all turns here in 1 Samuel chapter 10. God is going to give Israel a monarchy. He's actually going to give Israel what they want. So we move from theocracy to monarchy here. And Israel is going to learn that human kings, just like human people, sometimes follow God and sometimes they resist God and they go their own way. And God is going to allow the failure of human kings to discipline Israel. But that's later in the story. So this second division that we're going to talk about today, this division goes all the way until Matthew chapter 1, this period of monarchy. And we know what happens in Matthew chapter 1. The king of kings is born into the world, and Jesus comes saying he's bringing the kingdom of God. That's the third section, and we know how that section ends, too. The Revelation uh, book lets us know that King Jesus will rule with God. He'll rule over the new heaven and the new earth, and everyone in the kingdom of God will claim Jesus as Lord. So the whole storyline is king and kingdom. But right here in 1 Samuel chapter 10, we shift away from the theocracy of God and we switch to monarchy. But we know it's going back in Matthew with Jesus as king. So God's grace to Israel and to the world as Israel makes this untimely, unwise, dishonoring demand is really pretty remarkable. But that is who God is. He is a gracious God. In Exodus verse 34, 6, Moses wants to see God, and God says, no, you can't see me, but I'm, I'm going to give you the next best thing. I'm going to pass before you. And God's voice declares God's character. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's the description of God that will be repeated throughout the whole Old Testament, but God said it first about himself. That is God's character, and it's unchanging. That means God will continue to be God. So the question for Israel and for us is, if God is going to be God, who are we going to be? How will we respond to the gracious activity of God? So let's begin with God's gracious preparation of Saul as Israel's first king. I'll just back you up a little bit and help you remember where we are in the story. Israel is being ruled with God as their king, but they have the judges serving them. And Saul is the son of a very successful man from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul's father is a wealthy landowner. Saul is young and fit and handsome. Saul is a dutiful son at the point in the story when we meet him. He's traveling outside of the family lands because some of the livestock, the donkeys, have gone missing. And Saul is searching for the donkeys. That's where he encounters Samuel. And Samuel is a prophet of God. And we need to always remember that prophets are God's spokesperson. They hear the words of God and then they speak the words of God. So Samuel's never going to be speaking on his own. He's going to be speaking as God directs him to do here. All right, that's where our story picks up. We're going to back into chapter 9, 1 Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 27. 
And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil, and he poured it on Saul's head, and kissed him. And he said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies." Okay, I can only imagine this must have been the most shocking news to Saul. Um, I think God is graciously giving him this private little quiet experience with Samuel um, to receive this news. God's graciously giving him a little time for the shock to wear off, for it to become abundantly clear that God is in this, God is doing this. And Samuel's words are so important here. Notice that when he, he says, I want to give you the words of God. He never says, I'm giving you the words of Samuel. And then he doesn't say, I'm anointing you. He says, the Lord is anointing you. And he goes on to perform this symbolic act of anointing Saul. Now, anointing is pouring oil over someone's head, and it's not a, a mystical, magical experience. It is symbolic. And up to this point, anointing was used in the nation of Israel to designate either sacred people or sacred articles. So we know when a man was serving as priest of God, as he began his priestly ministry, he would be anointed with oil. And that would show that there's both a divine call and a divine commission on that man's life and on his service. But it wasn't just the priests. This was also done for articles that were used for worship in the temple. You know, when all of those um, lampstands and, and altars and tables and pans for the ashes, when all of those things were first built to be used for temple worship, they were all anointed, showing that they too were consecrated for God's use. So both the anointing and then the words of God, it shows very clearly God is choosing Saul to be Israel's next king. God is commissioning Saul to be the first king. And I just have to think, Saul must have been thinking, what is going on here? I'm just out looking for the donkeys, minding my own business. <laughs> and now I'm learning that I'm going to be king and somebody is pouring oil over me. I think it's gracious of God to let it happen so privately like this, and then I think it's gracious of God to let the truth sink in, to dispel the uncertainty by giving Saul a series of signs, confirming God is doing this, you can believe it. That's what Samuel does. He goes on to describe to Saul a series of signs, a series of unfolding events, and remember Samuel is predicting, he's prophesying the things that God has already told him are going to happen. So Samuel says, these are the three things that will be a sign confirming that this is God working. The first sign, Saul, as soon as you leave here, you're going to meet two men who have ties to your family and your family responsibility. And they're going to let you know your father doesn't care about those donkeys anymore. It's not about the donkeys. It was never about the donkeys. That's going to happen. The second sign, next Saul, you're going to meet three men. And they're going to be going up to the worship center in Bethel, and they will be carrying gifts. And the gifts would be given to the anointed priest. The gifts that they're carrying, they're carrying goats and bread and wine. The goats would be offered as sacrifice. The bread and wine would be offering. 
Okay, but instead of giving all of those to the anointed priest, they're going to give some of it to you, the anointed king, and you are to take it. The third sign at Gibeah Elohim, that literally means the hill of God, Saul's going to meet a large group of prophets. They're going to be worshiping and singing and prophesying, and they're going to have instruments. And listen to what will happen there. The spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be turned into another man. So each encounter is going to be a little larger than the one before. Each one is going to have a little bit more religious and political significance. And each one carried out as, just as it is predicted, that's going to allow Saul to recognize God is doing this. God is in this. And it's also going to allow Saul to recognize Samuel is hearing from God and Samuel is speaking for God. So let's read what happens in chapter 10, verse 7. Now, when these signs meet you, do what, excuse me, this is Samuel's instruction to Saul after he predicts all of these signs. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do." All right, when I read this the first time, I thought that was a little odd that Saul has just been anointed the king and now Samuel is bossing him around. You're going to go here, you're going to do this, you're going to wait seven days, then I'm going to come to you. Samuel seems to be in charge here. This is also God's gracious preparation. He's showing Saul that he will not rule Israel alone. His rule will not be independent because, you see, God is continuing to reign, but God is leading the people through a human prophet and a human king. There's going to be a unique relationship here between God's prophet and God's king. The prophet will actually hear from God and then speak God's word, and then the king will enact God's word. So the prophet will be the spiritual leader, and the king will be the political and the military leader. That's not like any of the other nations around them. In Israel, the king's plans would always be subordinate to God's plans expressed from the mouth of a prophet. In Israel, the king would always have limits on his rule, and God would be the one to set those limits. I think this, too, is gracious preparation from God. It's as if God is saying, Saul, you're inexperienced and you are going to be the king, but you aren't going to do it alone. I'm going to give you all the instructions and it's going to come to you from the mouth of my prophet. The instructions are going to say, here's the way, go this way. The instructions are also going to be, that is not the way, don't go that way. Saul is going to have instructions from God here. That's an amazing grace for Saul. And you know, I have to consider we have that same preparation for our life today. We have God's leading and we have God's declared limits on our life. We, we get God's word the same way Saul did. We get it right here. Through his word, he tells us, here's the path that's going to be a good path for you. And here are the things that are out of bounds. Stay off of that path. He also puts his Holy Spirit in us if we're followers of Jesus. And that means the Holy Spirit is helping us remember these words and helping us understand these words. And Isaiah even says the Holy Spirit will be like a voice inside you saying, this is my way, walk this way. 
Just like the king of Israel, we were not intended to rule ourselves, but we were created to be led, to be directed, and sometimes to be limited by the words of God and the spirit of God, and that is God's grace to everyone who lives in God's kingdom. So God is going to use all these things to graciously prepare Saul and to help him adjust to this big transition in his life. And next, God is actually going to graciously enable Saul to do the work. Let's begin reading in verse 9. When Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the other prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. All right, so what we learn here is the first and the second sign came to pass, but the third sign is really described in detail here, and I'm glad it is because there are some rather confusing expressions that that we want to try and figure out. God will make you a new man. He gave him a new heart, and the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. That's a little confusing language here. Now, I'm just sharing my opinion with you. I don't believe that the new man, new heart language suggests that that Saul had some kind of conversion experience here, going from unbelief to belief. I looked at a lot of commentaries. I didn't find anyone who believes this is a conversion being described. Most people believe that what's being described here is Saul had some kind of an encounter with the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. I'm going to use those terms interchangeably. They mean the same thing here. And so we have to remember we are reading the Old Testament from a New Testament context. The Holy Spirit operates differently in the New Testament than he did in the Old Testament. For us today, if we're a follower of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit that dwells inside us. It's a gift sent to us from Jesus the moment we believe. And Jesus says the Spirit is here to serve as our helper, as our counselor, as our convictor, as our guide. And we know, we have an assurance that the Holy Spirit seals us forever and protects us forever until we are in heaven with God. We can never lose the Holy Spirit. But that is not the Old Testament experience of the Holy Spirit. That's a New Testament reality. In the Old Testament, the presence of the Spirit was not given to everyone who believed, but the presence of the Spirit of God would show up periodically, usually when God had a designated person and he wanted that person to do some designated task. The language, the Holy Spirit will rush on you or come on you, that usually refers to a person that God's designated being enabled to do the work God wants them to do. If if you know your Old Testament history, we see this with Gideon when he was to fight a major battle. It happens. It happens to Samson. It happens to Moses. If you want to go on a little rabbit trail about how God uses the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, you can look back later today in Numbers chapter 11. You know, Moses was leading the children of Israel out of, 
out of Egypt and into the promised land, and he was led and enabled by the Spirit of God, but Moses became weary, and there were too many people for him to take care of all of them. So God's instruction was gather additional men here, and then God came, and he said, I'm going to take some of the Spirit that is on you, Moses, and I'm going to put it on these other men too, and they will all be enabled to do this spiritual work. So I think the words we have here suggest that it was the Spirit of God encountering Saul. And when the Spirit of God encountered Saul, in some way perhaps that overpowered Saul's own spirit, or perhaps it changed some of the desires of Saul's heart, making God want God's desires more than he wanted his own desires. Those are real possibilities here, but one thing is clear. There was some visible evidence that Saul was changed. Suddenly, Saul can prophesy. Just like all the other prophets, Saul can speak the inspired words of God. That is clearly a divine enablement. You know, at this time in Israel, they actually had schools of prophets, or like groups of mentee prophets who were working with an older, more mature prophet. Now, a a prophetic gift was a gift from God. You didn't just sign up for it. Um, God enabled it in you. But we have some evidence that younger prophets were being trained by older prophets. And if you think about um, how we came to know Samuel, as a young boy, he was taken to live with Eli. And Eli taught him how to listen to the words of God and how to speak for God. And so many believe that there were groups of prophets in Gibeah at this time. Many believe that Samuel was training them. But here's what everyone knows. Saul is not a part of that prophet school. Saul has never been one of the mentees being trained in prophecy here. So the question they're asking is how can this unschooled, untrained, local boy, son of Kish, speak inspired words of God? We're hearing him do it, but we don't know how it happened. Now, Saul did not become a prophet on this day. He never was a prophet, but he did demonstrate a prophetic gift on this day with no prophetic training. And the only explanation for that is it was a sign of God's enabling power. It was a sign of God's enabling presence with Saul. And this is how God works today too, isn't it? He still uses flawed people. Paul in the New Testament uh, refers to all of us who are doing spiritual work. He says, we're like broken, cracked flower pots, you know, broken terracotta vessels, and we hold the power of God in us. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And he'll say in Colossians 1.28, Christ we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. And in Jesus too, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So if God wants to produce a spiritual work through a human person, God will empower the work. God will enable the work. And that's true for us today, just as it was true for Saul. You know, I have a new morning prayer. I've been practicing this prayer for about a year now. I try to say it every morning as my waking thought before my feet ever touch the floor, before my mind starts racing through my to-do list. And it's a simple little prayer. It's, God, this day is yours. 
You made it, and you will sustain it. God, I am yours. You made me, and you've determined good work for me to do. Let me move through your day doing your work, only powered by your spirit. And this is a way I start my day that just orients me to the truth. I'm here to do any work God asks me to do. I don't need to worry about the work he asks you to do. I need to worry about the work he asks me to do. And it will only be productive if I rely on his power and his enabling instead of my own. Just like Saul, we can rely on the enabling power that God has given us to do the work he wants us to do. That's Ephesians 2. Okay, up to this point in the story, it's kind of a secret. Only Saul and Samuel know that Saul has been chosen as Israel's first king. We're going to move into this next section here, and it's God's gracious concession. He is letting all Israel know that he is giving them what they want. They've asked for a king, and he's going to give it to them as a concession. Look at verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. I think that sounds scary, and I think they might have been a little bit afraid of what God was about to do, um, but God actually is gracious here in this moment, and he is offering them a concession. He's going to give them what they want. So Samuel is gathering all the people together at a place called Mitzpah. This seemed to be a favorite gathering spot for Samuel. Um, we know it was the location of a miraculous victory over the Philistines just two chapters back in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And that was a miraculous victory that God gave them. And, and when they won that victory, Samuel set up kind of a memorial and he inscribed it, till now the Lord has helped us. And so I think Samuel's gathering there because it's emotionally an evocative place. It should stir up their memories of the God who leads them and the God who miraculously helps them and saves them. It should remind them of God's faithful care and protection and leadership as their king. And that, in that place, Samuel delivers this message. And don't be mistaken here, this is a message of judgment and condemnation. He's reminding all of Israel that God miraculously rescued them from Egypt, carried them into the promised land, and conquered all of their enemies. God was the one who drove their enemies out for them. And in response to God's gracious, powerful, perfect work as their God and king, the people are now rejecting the theocracy of God and asking for a human king. And God gives them what they want. It is such a concession of God. Verse 20, then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. 
And then they ran and took Saul from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Uh, Samuel is taking the people through this uh, very public process to reveal God's decision and God's choice, uh, his answer to their foolish request. And it says he uses lots. Now, we think of this as dice, but we don't really know for sure. I couldn't find any historian that could say with certainty that it was like dice. Um, But we know that Israel's high priest, part of their raiments, that they carried these little gemstones kind of in a pocket right here. And the gemstones were used sometime to determine God's will. So it may have been like casting dice. Um, That is certainly possible. Um, We don't know exactly what the process was, but we do know that the process was a way to show the will of God. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So they begin this process of casting the lot, and it's winnowed from the whole nation of Israel down to the tribe of Benjamin, from the tribe of Benjamin down to the family, to the clan, and somehow the lot lands on Saul. I don't know how that happens because he wasn't there. He was hiding among the baggage. I can't explain that. Nobody can. You can just formulate your own opinion on that. But the winnowing comes down, and it's clear that Saul has been chosen. And then he's not there. The people are a little confused. So we get one more display of divine leadership here. God is determining this because God communicates, I know where he is. He's hiding among the baggage. And Saul is immediately referred to as him whom the Lord has chosen. So this was no popularity contest. This was no vote among the Israelites. God has conducted this process and God has chosen Saul. And when this choice is revealed to the people, he looks so good to their human eyes. You know, he's young and he's strong and he's handsome and he's tall. And all they can do is say, long live the king. That's who we want leading us and guiding us. And this is the formal turning point in Israel's history. It's the formal turning point in those three divisions we have in the Bible. Israel now transitions from a theocracy, God is king, to a monarchy, a human is king. But please don't be confused here. God is still reigning. God is the king, and he's still reigning. He is allowing his leadership to go through a human king and a prophet requested by foolish people. God is not surprised by their rebellion. Deuteronomy 17, 14 shows God wasn't surprised. These are his earlier words. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and when you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So God knew this was coming. And he's directing the advance. And Samuel then concludes this formal process by recording the rights and responsibilities of the king. We don't have any other information about this. I think it's possible that he was following some of the things that God had instructed them in Deuteronomy 17 about when you have a king over you. But in my mind, as I imagine this, I see Samuel a little bit snarky 
with his pen writing down, and you will pay him taxes, and he can conscript your children, and you will bow to him, even though God said you only bow to me. I think that might have been a sobering experience to have all the responsibilities and the rights of the king recorded in front of all the people. You see, God had planned all along to bring a monarchy over Israel, but it was not to be a monarchy that went through the tribe of Benjamin. It was a monarchy that would come from the tribe of Judah, beginning with David. This was not God's plan, but it was God's concession. And we know it was a gracious concession because God could have just wiped out this whole generation. He could have said, I'm done with you. I'm starting again with your children. He did that in the wilderness. He certainly could have done that now, but he doesn't. He extends grace to the people and gives them what they wanted. So now Saul has been publicly vested with all the authority to rule as king. And then it just says, and the people all went home. And that seems kind of silly, but that's what happened. They don't really have a structure in place yet for how the king is going to rule them. But before the people go home, the political factions form. Was anyone startled by that? In case you think political factions are a modern phenomenon, no, it goes all the way back here. We've got two sides now, and we still see gracious God providing for Saul. It says that God stirs up and touched certain men's hearts, and they become the valiant men who support Saul. Most likely, this was the beginning of Saul's military force, because valiant means brave warrior there. So we've got some men supporting him, and others immediately question his ability and refuse to honor him. And that was really a pretty reckless decision to take. Um, It was pretty reckless to do that publicly. First, I think it was reckless because God has just made it perfectly clear that this was God's choice. I think they should have expected the earth to open up and swallow them in that moment. It was reckless to do that in front of God. It was also reckless with Saul because he's the king now, and he could have ordered them put to death. But Saul chooses to act graciously, and he keeps his peace toward these detractors. All of these events, this was God's concession for a people who have forgotten how well God has led them, how powerfully God has protected them, how decisively he has overpowered every enemy they've ever faced. They have forgotten. Memory serves us well only when we choose to use it. They're not using their memory here. As they face insecurity and uncertainty and threat, They don't remember how well God has served them in the past, and that causes them to doubt his timing and his care in the present. I think there's an important lesson for all of us here. God's faithful care and leadership in the past helps us trust his care in the present. We have to remember it. We have to remember God's care in the path in the past. We will all experience insecurity and uncertainty during different times in our life. We've experienced many in the past and many more will come. That's not the time that our memory of God should fail us. That's the time we should stir up our memory and make it fresh and put it on the forefront of our minds. I want to be honest with you, it gets a lot easier to trust God's timing as you get older. Having walked many, many years with God, I have a pretty long list of God showing up for me, of his power and his leadership and his care being so good. 
So if you're young, young in your years or young in your faith, I want you to know this is going to come a little more slowly for you, and that's okay. But what you need to do every time God shows up and acts faithfully for you, you need to write it down. You need to record it in some way. Maybe make a visual marker for yourself so that your memory will be kept alive. If you're young in your years and you don't have a good list of God's faithfulness to draw on, how about use this one? This book is full of God's faithful activity to his people. And look around you. Listen to the mature women around you who've walked with God for a long time. Use their list. We've got to remember God's gracious work in the past in order to trust him in the present. All right, chapter 11 is going to go on, and this whole thing is going to be a gracious confirmation. God is orchestrating multinational events here. He's going to make it clear to Israel, and he's going to make it clear to the nations around them that he has chosen Saul as king for Israel. If you'll uh, bear with me here, I'm going to paraphrase parts of chapter 11 just uh, to save us a little time. In short, the Ammonites are their enemies, and they've been a burr under Israel. Israel's saddle from the beginning of time. They've always created difficulty for Israel. Um, Nahash is the leader of the Ammonites here, and they are plaguing an Israelite city. If you're looking on your map, this is going to be up towards the north, just under the Sea of Galilee, and just to the east of the Jordan River. It's an Israelite city called Jabesh Gilead. All right, Nahash the Ammonite has besieged the city of Jabesh, Jabesh Gilead. Now, what you don't know here, Saul has some family ties in this area. Back in Judges 21, you can read about a pretty dark incident in Israel's history. The tribe of Benjamin was almost completely wiped out, and they were completely wiped out um, by basically a civil war. They were fighting with the other tribes. And because they could not sustain themselves, because their, their population was so few, they were given a concession that they could go to the area of Jabesh Gilead and take wives for the tribe of Benjamin so that they could reproduce and that the tribe would not be wiped out. So everybody from the tribe of Benjamin, this is where they're from. This is where their kin and their people came from. So they are emotionally attached to this area. The people of Jabesh Gilead are going to receive um, Saul's loyalty here, but they are going to remain so loyal to Saul till the very end. You're going to see their loyalty show up again. So Nahash has surrounded this Israelite city, and the men of Jabesh Gilead are so certain of their defeat that they immediately offer to enter a treaty with the Ammonites, enter into a treaty. And most likely this was an agreement that they would pay taxes and give their produce and give their crops to the Ammonites in exchange for just being left alone. It was a little bit like extortion. And Nahash is happy to accept that treaty, but he offers one condition, I'll accept your treaty, but he wants to disfigure all of the men of Jabesh Gilead by blinding them in their right eye. Well, not only would this humiliate the Israelites, the losers, but it would also handicap them militarily in a very significant way. All of the military tools were designed for right-sided people. The bows and arrows, the spears, even the way the shields were designed to be held, they were based on being able to have good vision out of your right eye. So if a man lost his sight in his right eye, he lost his capacity to be a good warrior. So that's probably what Jabesh is trying to do here. 
Well, the people of Jabesh Gilead, um, they wisely say, can we have seven days? Can we have seven days to see if we can get any help from Israel before we accept the terms of your treaty? That seems like an easy request to Nahash. I think he's probably counting the cost here. And he's thinking, well, rather than fighting a costly battle and losing some, some weaponry and some men's, let's just wait the seven days and they will surrender. And this will be easy. And Nahash had some good reasoning there because at this point, Israel has no standing army. Israel has a history of disunity among the tribes, particularly in this area. Israel has no king. Israel has no central government. That's what Nahash is banking on here. All right, pick the story up with me in chapter 11, verse 5. The message is sent from Jabesh Gilead back to Israel, and we're going to read about Saul receiving this message. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man." All right, they come out as one man. This is another instance of the Spirit of God rushing on Saul. So some kind of encounter with the Holy Spirit, and the result is it has stirred up Saul's spirit. It's kindled righteous anger, and it's somehow energized him, and it's really called him up into this leadership position. And then we see God actually doing something similar among the people. The dread of the Lord fell upon the people. They, too, are being influenced, I think think, by the Spirit of God here, and the response is great zeal and unity. All of Israel comes out to fight these Ammonites up at Jabesh. We're told that 330,000 fighting men show up to fight this battle. Some say this is the greatest show of military strength in Israel since the day of Joshua, when they were fighting to conquer the Promised Land. And Saul astutely divides that large army into thirds, and he leads a multi-sided attack that begins in the darkness of the pre-dawn hours, and his victory is quick and swift and divisive. We're told that of the few stragglers, the enemies that lived, there were no two walking side by side. That's how decisively they wiped out the enemy. So now there can be no doubt Israel has a king, Israel has an army, and God is still on Israel's side. That is abundantly clear here. And Saul isn't just being distinguished among the Israelites. Saul is being distinguished in the whole region. All the nations around would now know that Saul was the king confirmed by God. Let's pick the story back up in verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring those men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. 
Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. All right, folks, this is truly Saul's brightest, shiniest moment. He is displaying great, wise, gracious leadership in this moment. He's clearly enabled by God and obediently following God. Those detractors from the chapter before, they bubble back up here. The supporters want those detractors put to death. And the king has the prerogative to do that here. But Saul chooses mercy and grace for these men, and he immediately shifts the emphasis to glorifying God. And he reminds the people, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul doesn't take the credit for it. He's recognizing God's enabling power here. Great leaders always direct the people towards trust and confidence in God, not in themselves. They direct the people to put their trust and confidence in God, and that is what Saul is doing here. So we're told that another assembly is held. Samuel is fond of assemblies. This is kind of how things worked in Israel. And this one is sort of like a covenant renewal ceremony. They've already made Saul their king and written it all and submitted it all, but they're just renewing it here. They're reaffirming his kingship. They gather at an area called Gilgal. You can find that on your map. And I want to remind you as we consider this closing scene, we began with the question, how do the people of God respond to the gracious activity of God? This is a beautiful response in this moment from Israel. It's a model for us to follow. It's a great uh, formula that we can all use when we're approaching life's turning points. Because the way the people respond to the grace of God here, they respond with trust in God. They trust that God has chosen the king who's going to lead them. They also respond with obedience to God as they offer that peace offering. That's God's instruction for how they would do that and when they would do that. So they are trusting and they are obeying obeying God in this moment. And the response is joy. All of Israel is rejoicing. That's how this passage ends. And this is a model for us today because God will always be gracious. That's who he is. He was gracious to them and he is gracious to us. How has he been gracious in our time? He has prepared each one of us by sending a savior to conquer our enemy, by sending a savior who can overcome sin's penalty and sin's power in our lives. That's how God has prepared us. God has enabled us. He has indwelt every one of his followers with his Holy Spirit and gifted us to do good works. He has given us one another, the family of God, the kingdom of God, so that we can encourage and support and strengthen one another. And ladies, God has commissioned each one of us. He has good work for us to do in the world relying on his power. So our response needs to be trust. Trust in his providential rule of our life. Trust in his timing. Trust in his good protection in the past and in the future. Our response has to be obey him. Know how he wants you to live and do it. Know what he says is on the path and stay there. Know what he says is off the path and don't go there. Trust and obedience. The formula we have here is God's grace 
responded to with our trust and obedience yields joy. I'm going to finish this up here with a line from one of my favorite hymns. I learned this as a little girl, and these words have never failed me. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy, joyful in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Let's pray. God, you are gracious, and all we can do is thank you and praise you and be in awe before you. So thank you that you have prepared a way for us to be your people in your kingdom. Lord, I ask for your help, your help to strengthen us, to know what you would have us to do, and to rely on your power in us to do spiritual work in this world. Lord, I pray that you would help us to obey you, to trust you, and I pray that you would turn us into people of joy. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.